You're listening to the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel, part of AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic hip and knee surgeon at Louisiana State University in New Orleans. And I'm Jenna Bernstein, an orthopedic surgeon with Connecticut Orthopedics. And I'm uh, Tom Fleeter. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Reston, Virginia, and I'm currently the chairman of the AOS Committee on Professionalism. I'm Nick Frisch. I'm an orthopedic surgeon in Rochester, Michigan. I work for Ascension. With us today is Dr. Thomas Fleeter. Dr. Fleeter is an orthopedic surgeon in private practice in Reston, Virginia, where he is the co-founder of Virginia Physicians Retention Group, which is a medical liability insurance company. He is also the current chair of the AAOS Committee on Professionalism and the past chair of the Medical Liability Committee. He's also a member of the AAOS Now editorial board and a past member of the Council on Advocacy. Thank you so much for being here with us and talking about a topic that I know is very intimidating to a lot of young surgeons talking about medical legal aspects and being an expert witness. So tell us first how you started getting involved with the AOS Ethics Committee and the legal side of orthopedics, since this is not something that all orthopedic surgeons know about. So about 15 or 20 years ago in Virginia, we were looking at uh, malpractice premiums that were going to be upwards of $80,000 a year. And a group of us kind of serendipitously got together and uh, one of my friends who's an OB was looking at $100,000 a year premiums. And so we looked around for options and realized that we could start a much more cost-effective insurance program. And it's basically a risk retention group, which is analogous to an insurance company, but is regulated in different fashions. And we basically control the cost, and we've been running it for almost 20 years. And as a result of my efforts and initiating this insurance company, one of my colleagues at the AOS encouraged me to apply for the Medical Liability Committee because he thought I could share what I knew with others. I did that, became chairman of that committee, sat on the Council for Advocacy because of that committee chairmanship. And uh, then I was approached to be a member of the Committee on Professionalism. And when the past chairman stepped down, he said, you'd be an excellent chairman and nobody else stepped forward. So I I became the chairman of the, of the Council on Professionalism and uh, the brother Committee on Professionalism and uh, been doing this for several years and uh, really enjoy it. It's a really challenging position. Our committee basically adjudicates disputes between orthopedic surgeons. Just in general, if people aren't aware, when you become an AOS member, you sign an agreement that says you will abide by the 12 or so standards. And truthfully, most of them come up to be tell the truth. And don't exaggerate your skills, don't denigrate others, be nice to people, and you can stay away from my committee. Since we're recording this in June, do you mind telling us a little bit more about the Standards of Professionalism Amendment that we all just kind of voted on? Because it's fresh in our minds. Anything you want the listeners to know about that recently passed amendment? In general, we're all beholden to be professional. And there already was a standard that required us to act professionally. And as you know, in our academy, that women are still an underrepresented minority. And while there's more women now than there ever were, there's still a very small minority. And there was an incredible, all over our society, our movements, 
towards anti-harassment, anti-bullying, and it seemed like kind of a no-brainer to us. People were worried that it was a little bit of academy overreach, but the standard basically just says no bullying, no harassment is to be permitted. It seems like a total no-brainer. And so fortunately that amendment passed. I'm not sure how, since it only passed a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure how enforcement of that is going to go. I think it's important to realize that when people present complaints to the Committee on Professional, and a lot of it will be somebody who is sued, and they feel that the guy who testified against him testified untruthfully or exaggerated or stated facts that weren't true. But the thing in a lawsuit is that there's a lot of paperwork, there's depositions, and there's statements that are signed, and there's a lot of paperwork that's available as evidence. I kept thinking when I was a a resident, one of the professors, and I don't think a lot of people can testify to this, pretty much harassed and bullied pretty much everyone. And I think there's less of that today. But I kept thinking while while I was supporting this amendment, how would I have ever put together, you know, hard evidence, not just me saying so-and-so harassed me or bullied me, but how would I prove it? It's going to be difficult. But nonetheless, it is the new rule. And I really hope that we don't have to enforce this. But if it comes to it, I'm glad that we have a a rule that says, guess what? Be nice to others. And it protects tradees, I think, too, right? Because you have that big power differential there. So hopefully it will protect trainees. Absolutely. But without going into length, it was kind of a residency director who was bullying people. And how do you complain about your residency director and take him up? before a bunch of peers. And, you know, this is somebody who has your life in their hands. But this is true across residency in general. But I think the fact that there is a standard may discourage people from acting poorly. I hope it does anyway. All right, so let's get into it. Talking about first about being an expert witness. So let's start with the basics, because I think a lot of people don't even know the terminology or what we're talking about. So just what does it mean to be an expert witness? Well, being an expert witness basically means that you have to have expertise in that particular field. And in general, a minimal criteria would probably be to be board certified in your area and have an active practice, clinical practice that surrounds the problems. You don't have to be a, a member of the Shoulder and Elbow Society to talk about shoulders, but you better see some number of shoulders in your life and have some experience. And we've seen people get in trouble by being experts on fields that they're not truly experts in. But let's just say this is a group of hip and knee surgeons, and pretty much everyone here would be eligible to be an expert on a hip or a knee problem, particularly with the total joint. So it basically means you have to be an expert. But then your responsibility by our academy's rules is, and this is what trips people up, is if you're an expert, just tell the truth. Don't say, if you would have done this, taken this step, this complication would have never happened. Or if you would have done this, this always happens. That happens a lot. And don't say that such and such is a standard when it's not. Just be truthful. And that's what's required to be an expert. But I always remind people when I talk about this to tell the truth, don't exaggerate, don't say always, don't say never, and don't be afraid to stand up for what you think is right. All we have in this world is our name and our reputation. And if you sell that out because some attorney is paying for you, it's a step in the wrong direction. So this brings up another question. You mentioned the standard of care. 
I've always wondered, how do you even define what is the standard of care? Well, the legal ease is what a prudent physician would do in that particular situation. But, you know, if you take, say, let's say you have a six-week-out infected knee, what's the standard? Do you wash it out, do a poly exchange, take everything out, do a single stage or a two-stage? They're all standards. I would say looking at it and doing nothing would probably violate the standard, but all of those are appropriate treatments, and it may depend on the, the overall health of, of the patient and what other issues are going on, but it's, it's important to be fair, and, and being fair would include being saying that all those things are the standard. And any one is right, but they could, it could turn out that washing it out wasn't adequate, but you might not have known that at the time. We've all faced that. So, Dr. Fleeter, with what you just said and kind of parlaying into what you said earlier about tell the truth and be honest, can you give us some examples of how you've seen different attorneys sort of ask the questions or sort of use certain statements or anything that comes to mind that makes it challenging? Because I've been through a couple of these myself, and I'm always amazed at how clever they can be in, in sort of trying to get you to answer a certain way or lead a certain way. You know, isn't it true that this could happen? Or are you saying that, that this isn't what happened? How do you wrap your head around that? My personal role on when I'm in, a, in, a, in any kind of an expert position is the, if you're faced with it, you don't, there's no time limit. So take 10 seconds and formulate your, your I always tell people to count to 10. Don't let these guys trip you out. The attorneys will, will always beat you at kind of wordsmithing. You can't, you can't beat them at that. That's their job. That's not our job. But if, if you explain your case, don't let them box you into a corner by saying, isn't this true? Isn't this true? And I'll give you two examples of things that I've seen where people were tricked into falling the wrong place, right? Actually, three. So the first one would be, this is an actual case that our Committee on Professionalism faced. A patient had a partial knee replacement. It was a really bad protoplasmy, hepatitis, diabetes, got an infection, and the doctor in that case elected to wash it out, do a poly exchange, and it led, one thing led to another, and the patient had a really poor outcome and ended up with an amputation. But that was not foreseeable at the time. And the expert said if he would have done an exchange and taken out the parts and then gone back later and did a total, this complication never would have happened. He should never have said that. Who, who could forecast that? You know, it's just a, it was a bad patient. It was bad protoplasm. It was a bad case. Second one that I saw recently, I was actually asked to, to talk about this one, is a patient had a uni and ended up having pretty bad patellofemoral pain and probably had some arthritis. But arthritis is not a contraindication. In the patellofemoral joint, is a contraindication to do in a uni if the patient's pain is mainly medial. And this patient had a uni and ended up having patellofemoral pain. And they tried to blame the treating surgeon for doing the wrong operation. And, you know, it'd been easy to fall into that trap. But you could just say, look, these are judgment calls and you make your best call at that time. And this surgeon certainly did that. And it, you shouldn't allow yourself to fall into the trap that the, the attorney kind of sets for you. And finally, there was a case of somebody who uh, went to China, got food poisoning and was salmonella and salmonella grew out of her hip. It's a pretty rare case. 
And they were trying to say that the, the doctor missed the diagnosis. The lady's four years old, she had a little aching in her hip. And I mean, I don't know that it's kind of a reportable case, but sure enough, they had an expert to talk about it. And he basically said that you should have known that if you go to China, you get food poisoning and food poisoning can infect your hip. I didn't know that was a thing. And yet, you know, so people just, they tend to exaggerate largely because the attorney sets the trap for you to do this. You just don't want to fall into that that trap. If you don't feel like you can opine about it, it's okay. You shouldn't let the attorney, the attorney will give you a, a statement, a letter. They'll write something up. And it's too easy for doctors to just sign it and say, yes, this is my statement. Feel free to edit it. Your job in life isn't to keep attorneys happy. It's, as I say, it's to be honest and maintain your, you know, your own respect and your own professionalism. So going back a little bit, can you talk about the difference between being an expert witness and a fact witness? So a fact witness gets called on. And truthfully, typically what happens is that if you're a treater, you may decide you can get involved in a case, but you don't want to be an expert, but they can subpoena and make you show up. And in that case, you're a fact witness. You can say, I took the patient to the operating room at such and such a date. Yes, this is my operative report. This is what I find. But if the attorney asks you to formulate an opinion based on this, you can decline because you're only a fact witness. You can't get out of being a fact witness because they can subpoena you to be a witness. And you have to be aware of what you wrote in the chart, but you don't have to be aware of any of the other circumstances. You just testify to what you know about this case. On the other hand, an expert, if you're going to be an expert, one of our criteria is that you have to read all of the the data that's about, that doesn't mean you have to read the family doctor's report from when they were a kid, but you better know everything that happened to this patient about their, in this case, hip or knee. And that means you have to read all the records. You have to even read the nurse's notes and x-ray reports and lab reports. And you have to look at every x-ray and be aware of every CAT scan. And that's what's required of an expert is that they have to be aware of the entire scope of what happened to that, that particular patient affecting this, the incident in, in play. Can we take it even more basic for me, sure. for the simple people? Explain to us what is a deposition? What is a subpoena? How do those things interact? Let's hear the very basic level. Okay, so a subpoena uh, is, is an order written by the court that requires somebody to do something. And, you know, uh, so if, if, if you're issued a subpoena to provide records, it's a court-mandated thing. Yes, there's ways to fight it, but in general, if you're subpoenaed to appear or you're subpoenaed to produce records, then you, you're obligated, unless you get an order countermanding that, to provide those things. Uh, dep- so the f- stages in a lawsuit is if a patient has a lawsuit or has an idea that they've been injured, they go to an attorney. And truthfully, the smart attorneys will kind of farm it out. They'll send it to somebody. The plaintiff's attorneys will send it to somebody because malpractice cases are really expensive to prosecute. They could easily cost $100,000 or more from both sides. So a smart plaintiff's attorney will get opinions about the whether this is worth pursuing or not. And for a few thousand dollars, they can figure it out. Remember that when a patient walks into a malpractice plaintiff's 
attorney's office, they don't require any upfront payment. The plaintiff's attorneys make money by getting a percentage of the winnings. So they want to win all of their cases. So they're only going to take the cases they think that are, have monetary value that have a lot of monetary value. So if a case is going to cost $100,000 to prosecute, the plaintiff's attorney is only going to take, if it's going to cost him $100,000, he better win $100,000 or rather half a million to make that, to make it profitable for him. So then the next step is a complaint is issued, usually it's a lawyer's letter that comes to the defendant, namely a orthopedic surgeon, and typically, at least in most states, there's a finite period to respond. So in Virginia, which is a state I know the most about, but this is true across the country, if you get a letter from a lawyer, you have 21 days to respond. Now, your response technically only has to be, I didn't do it and I'm not guilty. That could be it. But if you don't respond at all, there have been cases where a judge, based on the physician's failure to respond, within a certain period of time, issues a summary judgment and it's not appealable, you lose. So after this letter is issued, you want to reach out to your insurance company, your lawyer, and get them to respond promptly within the deadline. At that point, things take forever to turn. And then the next thing that happens is that there are depositions. And depositions are court-ordered sworn testimony where you raise your right hand and swear to tell the, the truth. And it can be a couple-hour affair, and everyone gets deposed. The plaintiff, her brother, her cousin, her husband, all the treating doctors, the radiologists, and then on the, you know, and everybody on the defendant side, experts, and you know, there could be, you know, a dozen or more depositions. And there's a when you're do, giving a deposition, it could be in your office or the attorney's office, but there's a court, it's you recorded audio, and many times there's a video recording, and there's a court reporter who's transcribing everything that's said. And are those, yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Are those paid? So I think it's good to clarify, are you paid for a deposition? Are you paid for a subpoena? What the people need to know. If you're the defendant in the case, no, there's no payment. Let's some insurance companies will pay you while you're in trial to help make up for lost wages. But, you know, the the people who get paid are the experts. Otherwise, this isn't a charity. You know, it's a, uh, if you're an expert, you get paid because it takes time to prepare. You have to read all the documents and there could be thousands of pages of, of depositions that you have to read and medical records. And as you know, a knee arthroscopy generates in our hospital about 150 pages of records. So you're responsible for reading all that and being generally aware of what it is. So experts get paid. And typically, people who give depositions get, will bill up front for it. And because it's taking time out of your life, and you don't want to trust that the attorney will pay you later. They expect you to charge them up front and demand payment before you start your deposition. So if someone asks you to be an expert witness and you decide you want to be involved with this case, how do you know where to start if you've never done this before? Can you talk about what's expected of you in the process, if you should be familiar with the law? Like, how do you know where to start? Well, first, you want it to be an area that you know something about. So if you're not a spine surgeon, don't do a spine case, you know. So but if it, let's say this group of people watching this 
or listen to this podcast are hip and knee experts, then we're going to assume this is going to be a hip and knee case. And an attorney reaches out to you, then you want to have a fee schedule for reviewing. We have a fee schedule for reviewing records, for preparing opinion letters. Basically, it says, this is what I found. This is what I believe. And we have a fee schedule for giving a deposition. We have a fee for going to court. And depositions, if I do a deposition, it'll be at the end of my day at 4 o'clock or something like that. And it'll be in my office and I can still be home by 6 o'clock. But if you go to trial, no guarantee the trial is going to be in your neighborhood. And it always takes longer than you think it's going to take. So generally, you're taking that whole day off. So you should plan to charge accordingly. So where do you start? You have to make sure that you have all the records. You don't have to have originals. And it doesn't matter if it's paper or electronically. More and more of them are electronically. But you have to have copies of all the x-rays, all the CAT scans. Don't trust the radiologist report any more than you would in your own life. We all like to read our own x-rays. Based on that, typically, the attorney will ask you to summarize your comments. And regardless of which side you're on, the, the attorney will help you with this. I mean, it's, he's, it's his business. Not our, we know how to do hip replacements, but we aren't born knowing how to give expert testimony. And so the, the attorney will kind of typically, if you're going to give a deposition, they'll prompt you and they'll know what questions they want you to answer and how to answer them. That doesn't mean you have to answer them the way he wants him to, but you'll want, he'll give you a, a pretty good idea as to what he expects to hear. And I guess my other advice was don't be argumentative. If the plaintiff's attorney is particularly aggressive and he says, don't you agree he brought, operated on the wrong leg? You should say, yes, I do. Don't get in an argument with him. Well, he didn't mean to operate on the right leg. He meant to left. Don't get in a whole discussion. Just give up what you have to give up. I'd like to just follow up on what you said at the beginning that your group has these fee schedules. Is there a reference for the people who are listening to get an idea of what is a reasonable fee schedule to put together? You mentioned a lot of things, travel, depositions, court, and varying research backend stuff. I mean, where would people go if they're interested in getting involved, but maybe aren't part of a group that has this established? Or does the AOS have any data on this or anywhere we could start? Here's what I tell people. You know, we're not really supposed to share fee schedules, whether it's insurance companies or otherwise. But what I tell people is if you are in the office for a half day and you're seeing patients, let's say you see five patients in a half an hour, in an hour, right? I don't know what, some people are faster, some are slower, but let's say your five patients generate X amount of dollars. And whatever that X amount of dollars is, Take the Medicare fee schedule for five new patients and whatever that would add up to, uh, that's what your hourly rate should be. Something about that. Don't be embarrassed if, you, if it's that it's several hundred dollars. It, it always is. The attorneys are expecting that. If it's 10000 an hour, they're going to wonder what the heck's going on. But take that hourly rate and figure that's what it is. And if I travel for a trial, I think, you know, then it's a whole day out of the office. And whatever you would have generated in the operating room or in the office in that whole day is a reasonable amount to be. You're, we're on this earth to, to take care of sick people in a way. We're not on this earth to testify. So if you are taken away from your family or your job or your golf course, whatever it is, <laughs> and you're doing this, this, it's not a charitable business. No med mal guy is doing this because he's hoping to make the world a better place. He's doing it because this is how he earns a living. 
and he's expecting you to charge him some amount. And is there anything that we need to be considering for that that could open us up to any sort of liability? You know, like we can't take a pen from somebody because, you know, it'll influence us. So is there some... uh, The only guidance that our academy offers on this is your testimony can't be dependent on outcome. So you see patients and you see somebody with a, you do a hip replacement and, you know, the reimbursement is what it is. It's you're offering a service and you're getting paid for doing a hip replacement, right? That's not, that's not taking a box of Kleenex from a drug rep. You're actually providing a service and getting paid for it. The same thing applies here. There's no number. And they like to, if you, let's say you charge $500 an hour, just as an example, and you did five hours of prep work to get ready for a trial, those are not outrageous numbers. Let's say you did five hours of prep work. You know, there are thousands of pages and x-rays and takes time to organize and formulate your thoughts. And you legitimately did five hours of work at $500 an hour. Don't be surprised if the opposite attorney will say, isn't it true, Dr. Smith? that you charge $2,500 for half a day? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, this doctor got $2,500 for doing that. They do this all the time. Don't be embarrassed. It's what, you know, we went to medical school. We we earned poverty wages as a resident. We finally were making a few pennies doing this, and you're not going to charge $30 an hour for doing this kind of work. It's not worth it. But it should be roughly equivalent to what you earn. You shouldn't be embarrassed about it. Rush, I think you should go for the full ten thousand. Just, just yeah, go right. for it. You're, you're worth it. You're, you you're are worth Nick Rich. What is, that, what is that? Cash only, right? Yeah. I've seen, I've seen a guy who's charged twenty thousand dollars in a day, and I guess on one hand, it's kind of embarrassing that that's what he's charging, and they made a big fuss over it, and they hope that the jury will think less of him. But you know, you have to charge something for your time and it's pick a number that seems fair to you. It's more than $100 an hour across the board, but I, I don't know if there's a, a specific reference for what you, I just figure in my own life, it's roughly what I would earn in an hour to see in patients. Mm-hmm. That's great. So we talk a lot about being an expert witness for the defense as a way to kind of protect our fellow orthopedic surgeons and make sure they're getting a fair trial. Can we talk about being an expert witness for the plaintiff and when there's a time where that's appropriate to do? We know there's been some debate, at least in the AUKUS committee, about doing this. Personally, just about every time I've ever testified, I've testified on the behalf of, a, of the defendant, you know, on the, on the defense side. I've helped out a lot of doctors over my life. And what would it take for me to do a plaintiff's case? Be kind of a an this is my own moral compass, but this should not be construed as anybody's dictum, but this is what I live by. And that is, you know, stuff happens to all of us. We've all had periprosthetic fractures. If you live long enough, you're going to have infections and nerve injuries and all sorts of things that happen in the course of being a good doctor and still stuff happens. And so I always looked at it like it should be kind of an active assassination attempt where malpractice isn't, for most people, it isn't just one event, but it's multiple attempts at missing the diagnosis or missing the treatment or misprescribing a drug. And to me, that would be the only thing that would make me or doing something where the doctor was clearly in over his head. I guess if I was going to be on the defendant, on the plaintiff's side, it would require me to find that this doctor, you know, really took some gigantic leap the other way, not just missed a compartment syndrome, but had 10 chances to make that diagnosis. I've been in practice for 30 years plus, and I think I've seen 
two cases that I was tempted to be on the the plaintiff side, and both times were cases where the the Dodgers' behavior was so egregious. I, I'll share the one with you, and that a, a guy took down a hip fusion and did a hip replacement. And he, you know, the problem is it's a really uncommon operation, and not just the community guy should be doing these, but take it on. While you're doing it, you better make sure you get an x-ray so because you have no idea where the real escalum is. We never did that, and he put it, the cup in a really bad Petrugio position. And okay, we've all had Petrugio cups or cups that we weren't all that proud of, but you needed to tell the patient, I don't really like where this cup is, and I'm afraid that this thing's going to migrate. And he watched it migrate over 10 months until it came completely into the pelvis. And he had a series of x-rays that showed that this cup kept moving immediately. And I'm going, geez, at any one time, he could have just blown the whistle and said, look, this is over my head. I'm sending you to the academic institution down the road. And this guy kept ignoring the fact and blaming the patient. And I thought this was the one. But that was, it was a long time ago. But he, this was malpractice suit number 11 for that guy. So he clearly didn't care about his patients. And so that was easier for me. But I don't think I've taken any since then. It's hard. And, you know, how do you find yourself in that? in the stand against somebody you, you know, in your neighborhood, it'd be really hard. You know? Yeah. So. And especially, you know, exactly like you said, these kind of complications do happen. And if you handle it appropriately, it's just, it's a bad luck for the you and bad luck for the patient, but it's not necessarily malpractice. I look at it like if you, I've written a couple articles on the fact that if you're a second opinion, you should be nice to the original guy. Cause you know, you don't want to be dissing your neighbors. And I, I look at it like a really simple thing, and that is uh, there but for the grace of God go high, you know. And you see, uh, I saw a lady recently who had a patella tendon rupture after a knee replacement, and it's like the worst possible complication, right? Guy tried to repair it. These are fraught with complications. She was mad as hell and ready to file a lawsuit, and I'm going, you know, I've been there. I'm just, you can throw water on that fire if you want to, or you can throw gasoline, your choice. Yeah. I'm totally with you. Always try and think about it. Like these things happen to all of us and, you know, you have to give the person the benefit of the doubt that they are doing their best. Right. Because sometimes the patients sometimes will ask you, Oh, didn't this person mess up? You know, what would you do? And that's almost a trap as well. So it's, I think it's important to be like, well, I wasn't there and let's focus on the problem you have now and how we're going to make you better, you know, to try to shift that perspective. People say to you, what do you think he was thinking? And I go, you know, I don't have a clue what he was thinking, but I'll tell you what, I think you should call him up and ask him what he was thinking. <laughs> I don't know. People say, don't you think I have a lawsuit or this and that? And as soon as I, I throw, you know, I do what I can to to put those fires out. There's, there's enough troubles in the world without, without you know, inflaming your patients to go after other, other docs. Yeah. Find something else to do. With your experience on the ethics committee and maybe some of these other committees, could you just comment on sort of your perspective or, or maybe the academy's perspective on uh, participating in sort of medical legal work while you're involved in some of these committees? Because I know this has come up in our society at AUKUS and whether or not board members should completely abstain from any sort of medical legal work just while you're representing the, the group at that level. Do you have any thoughts on that or, or any perspectives you could share? Well, there was... Several years ago, there was a, a AOS president who, just as the side, the final results of our, if, if we decide 
Dr. Smith or Dr. Jones violated a standard, then our decision gets appealed automatically to the Judiciary Committee. And if the Judiciary Committee agrees with our finding, then it goes to the board, the subcommittee of the board, and then the board votes on it. So there's three levels. And before any kind of a punishment can be meted out. But if in this one case, it was a former officer in our AOS, right? And we thought, geez, if you're elected to be representing all the people here, then maybe you shouldn't be the guy who's testifying. He kind of agreed to that. But I don't think that every committee member can be, you know, automatically discouraged from testifying one way or the other. That that probably isn't in anybody's best interest. Our standards are basically set up not to discourage testimony, than to discourage less than fully honest testimony. So if you're testifying honestly and you don't say that something is a standard when it's not or vice versa or overstating your credentials or not reading all the records, all the things that we've seen or not reviewing x-rays or cursing one guy who's a fairly prominent member of our academy said that he thought there was never a reason to do an elbow arthroscopy, that it was a baloney operation and should never be done. And, you know, it's pretty standard. There's lots of guys doing elbow arthroscopies, and it's a reasonable thing if the right case. So you don't want to be in a position of damning this stuff, but, uh, you know, you should do it at your own comfort level. I don't think you have, you're obliged just because you serve in a specific position that you shouldn't, you shouldn't testify. You should testify honestly. It's kind of that simple. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. I sort of felt like uh, a lot of the people in those rooms are probably people that if I were in a defense position, I would want those experts to weigh in or, or someone with that level of expertise, maybe. So it seems like almost the group kind of self-selects itself to being on that that panel if needed. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, I mean, you know, how many people are on Academy? 20,000, something like that. And how many are active positions? maybe a couple thousand, you know, and so to automatically exclude those people from any kind of expert work is, wouldn't be the goal. It, we want our patients, truthfully, on both sides to have access to a courtroom and have access to with experts. And, and it can't be our academy's role to just say no one will testify. Just testify to the truth. It's that simple. I've gotten a general sense from a lot of what you said in our conversation so far to, you know, obviously stick to the truth, but avoid these sweeping generalizations. I think that's been a common theme. And a lot of these things sound like stuff that I would maybe say, talking to a resident while I'm cementing, like ranting about unis or patellas or whatever. But that's right. the place for that, right? That's the deposition or the, the no, expert we, witness the, stand the, is not the place for that. Yeah, the, the deposition isn't <laughs> the place. If you think, if this one expert said, A, I remember, he said, there's no role in the world for elbow arthroscopy. All right, you know, and then he said, <laughs> and radio, he was, there was an X-ray reporter, a CAT scan reporter, and he said, and you know, in just a few years, and while this may be true, there'll be no further use for radiologists, courtesy of AI and everything else. It's like, okay, that might be your opinion, <laughs> and that might be something that you can share doing a hip fracture at 10 o'clock at night with your right. resident. Exactly. But probably not the best place under court of law when you're testifying with you know, your right hand on a Bible and whatnot to sit, swear to tell the truth, your opinion shouldn't be, you don't need to be broadcast in that situation, you know. And conversely, there was a case where uh, there was a probably a misdone 
hip replacement and the, the cup was probably way over abducted, right? And the, the expert for the plaintiff, the person who was suing, had only an AP of the hip without an AP of the pelvis. How can you measure the angle of abduction if you don't see both ischial tuberosities? It's kind of something you learn as an intern, right? And yet he swore he could tell it. Like, really? So you want to tell it, just tell the truth. It's not a place for your, you know, you're ranting and raving at that point. You know, we've all done that, you know, but in the operating with a mask on, you can say what you want, kind of, <laughs> you know. Kind of. Definitely yeah, kind of. Of. yeah, go back kind to those bullying professionalism standards. <laughs> right, exactly. So how often do you see orthopedic surgeons getting sued? I mean, is this something everyone should expect to see in their career? And do you think most of them settle? Just how many of them go to court? I think we're all terrified of this. There's no 100% statistics on this. In general, every orthopedic surgeon will be sued at some point in their life. You can just kind of count on it. And on average, if you have a 30 or 35-year career, it'll probably happen more than once. The number they throw out is every seven years. But I don't know whether that's really 100% true or not. Lots of people will practice their whole life. That means there's some guys who are going to skew the average. But it, it's going to happen now and then, no matter what you do. We see patients, and bad outcomes don't necessarily mean malpractice, but bad outcomes make patients go seek lawyers to some extent. But really what makes people, and I've, I've written a couple articles on this, what makes people find lawyers isn't bad outcomes. Your patients will forgive your mistakes and your wound infections, everything, but they won't forgive you not listening to them and not hearing them. And I gave a grand rounds to a program in Michigan a month or so ago on uh, how to avoid being sued. And my favorite case, and this is a real incident, is a patient in Colorado had a five-hour multi-level spine fusion. And when she woke up, she was blind from optic ischemia, about the worst. You know, we know it exists, but it's so rare. And whose fault was it? Who knows? But it happened, right? So the question is, who does the lady sue? And you, know, you have three choices. She can sue the orthopedic surgeon who did her surgery. She can sue anesthesia for not, you know, keeping an eye on her eyes, old case. She can sue the hospital. And then she can sue everybody, right? And so who does she sue? And she only sues the anesthesiologist. And why? I like my orthopedic surgeon too much to sue him. And that's a true case. So people have trouble taking people they like to court. They'll forgive you for that, but they won't forgive you for not talking to them. So it's a whole different topic. But it's communication with our patients is key. Putting your hand on your patient's shoulder and saying, I'm sorry this happened is always an okay thing. Don't say, I'm sorry I did this to you. Are there certain things you think are the most common that people get sued for that you see these days? Well, the most likely thing to get sued for across the board are nerve injuries. And that's across the board. And uh, people understand they cut a nerve, my leg doesn't work anymore, I've got a foot drop, whatever it is. High up on the list are leg length discrepancies after hip replacements. And maybe that's a little less now that they're doing anti-approach hips more, but still is high up on the list. Spine surgeons generate their own share of, of complications. But in the hip replacement and knee replacement world, the number one and number two ones are nerve injuries and leg length discrepancies that are more than an inch or so. Talking about 
this topic, I always think back to documentation. You said you read thousands of pages of notes. And so one of the things that I think comes up a lot is how comprehensive we are in terms of our documentation, whether it's in our op note or maybe our clinic note when we're looking at people preoperatively, postoperatively, kind of documenting all these things. Do you have any advice for some of the younger surgeons or maybe even the older ones out there in terms of your experience with, you know, how extensive you want to get with your documentation? I mean, obviously, like you said, you want to be truthful. You want to put all that in there. But if there's a complication intraoperatively or if you see something intraoperatively, to what extent are you documenting that in your operative report and does it matter? Okay, so the first thing is that the operative report, as I was told when I was a resident, is the news, not the editorial page, right? So you document what happened. Don't say, I thought this was a particularly difficult way to get into this or my opinion. Just state what you saw, right? But don't hide anything. Just state what you saw. That's the operative report. Never once read a summary by that was done by any physician where he said, boy, that guy documented too much, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, we all have these busy lives and we're all saddled with these electronic medical records. And so the, the things that people curse about them are one, don't we all cut and paste where you, the last exam becomes the next exam? And, uh, you know, where you just take the last examination you had and you can I know we can do it in ours and sure and I'm familiar with modernizing medicine and epic and both those allow you to do that. And we used to have next gen, which is another common one, and you can do it in all these and just take a copy of it and move it, paste yeah. it forward. That's okay if it's if it's accurate. And but I think the the problem is that EMRs both in the hospital and elsewhere, it's time consuming to type all that stuff in, even with voice recognition. It takes time and when you get a, a busy day in the office, sometimes these things slip by. And we're all guilty of that to some extent. But the more you put in there about what you saw, the more accurate your report is, the easier it'll be for you to defend what you did. And most importantly, when you get informed consent, it, the last place in the world you should get informed consent is in the holding area. That's not a good place. Sit down with your patient and in the office, have them sign the consent in the office. They can easily back out from surgery there. No one backs out from surgery when they're sitting on a stretcher with an IV in there, you know. So it's a really good point to, to, you know, you should both be sitting there with both of you should have your clothes on, not just you, you know. Like it's um, true. I mean, it is true. I mean, sometimes it happens. You're on call for the ER. There's not much you can do about it. But for your elective hip and knee replacements, they should sit in the office and sign it then. If, and even if I tell my patients, even if you're not going to have your surgery right away, sign the consent here. Have your questions answered here. We'll just put it in a drawer. We won't touch it or do anything. And you call me when you're ready. But at least they've signed the consent now and not called you up a month later and said, okay, I'm ready. Do I have to come back in? And, you know, so I, I always try to make them sign it then. And I make sure that that they we have it on an iPad, but I always come back in after they've done sign it to make sure they, that I've covered all their questions. Any thoughts you'd like to share about the recent well-publicized large settlements being issued involving doctors taking care of professional athletes? So I think here's, well, so first know that that case happened in Philadelphia. And when I was chairman of the medical liability committee, 
we used to give a course that we ran for several years called the Anatomy of a Liability Suit. And my we had three, you know, speakers like every instructional course. And one was a uh, defense attorney. One was the uh, orthopedic surgeon who was the president of a large insurance company. And the final one was a Philadelphia lawyer. And he would brag about how fertile the ground was in Philadelphia for med mal cases. And he had even had shark cufflinks. So uh, I learned a couple things from that guy. And he was giving away all the secrets. And somebody said to him, aren't you worried you're going to spill the beans and you went in business? He said, there's only like 150 of you in the room. He says, Philadelphia's a big city. I got, I got thousands of you. And uh, so uh, the one thing I learned from that guy was to just be honest. Tell the truth. Don't hide what you did. If, it, if it's intuitively honest, just speak. But the other thing I learned was that some places in the world, and I guess Philadelphia would be one of them, were our fertile grounds for the plaintiff's side. So I think the final word hasn't been written on this judgment. It's, I'm sure it's going to, I don't have any firsthand knowledge, but I think the problem is that if you have a 40 plus million dollar lawsuit, nobody has that much liability insurance. And then at least in Virginia, there are caps, but that's not the case in every state. And if this case were to really go forward, who's got a spare 40 million? And so that's really concerning. And it's, I know it's kind of shaken up the world of people who take care of professional athletes because if there's really a chance you could lose a case for $40 million, what's the economics of taking care of professional athletes? And so I think it, that has to be addressed on multiple levels and whether the doctors become employees of the teams, so the teams assume the, li- assume the liability for that, or there's some agreement with the Players Association or some other thing. And it's kind of a little bit above my pay grade on that one, but I think there's going to be have to be some reconciliation on this and truthfully most large lawsuits like this ultimately settle for the amount of money that is extractable from the insurance company and whether that's the case in this one i guess that's a possibility or whether it's overturned on appeal i think is it's still pretty early these things go on for a really long time i don't know if i have any other great wisdom i've talked to a lot of people it's been quite the topic for a while with what you did with your group, and maybe you can give us some insight on this, but settling versus not settling. And I guess one of the things that comes up or has come up here in Michigan a few times with some people that I know is that, you know, if they really feel like they're right, they don't want to settle and they're willing to, to take it. And there's a lot of discussion about the value of that. There's your time and all those things. But what are your thoughts on maybe your experience with this? And the other thing, the reason I'm asking is because it seems like if attorneys are very smart with their shark cufflinks and maybe they know which hospital systems, which companies are willing to, for a certain amount, just walk away and, and avoid any sort of further litigation. So that's easy. But if, if maybe a private group is privately insured or self-insured, they know that they have never settled a case, they're less likely to start a case. There's a couple of different things on that. One is smart defense attorneys don't like to settle. And the reason they don't like is they don't want to, if, they, if it's, if you operate on the wrong leg, there's no defense or leave a sponge in the wound or whatever that, you know, it's that there's a Latin expression, if so res loquit or the act speaks for itself. What's your defense for operating on the wrong leg? There is none, right? So that, that kind of thing, you're going to settle. 
But in general, they don't like to give it up because they, they want these plaintiff's attorneys to make them work for their, their buck. And two-thirds of malpractice suits that are brought to court are found on the behalf of the defendant. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to give up easy. But on the other hand, having been through one of my own, these are really, really stressful moments. And you look back and you go, God, that was, you know, 10 days out of my life. I never want to relive. And if I got sued again, I don't know what I would think, but I, I don't think I want to go to court ever again. You know, it's so painful to sit there for 10 days and, you know, have your reputation impugned for 10 straight days. It's pretty tough to sit through. So, but, but the other part is that there's this data bank thing. And even if you settle a lawsuit for $5,000, that's a data bank thing and nobody Nobody wants that either. So the best thing you can say is have a defense attorney who you can trust and have that discussion with them. But they're, they're, one of my buddies who was near retirement just said, I'm settling because I don't care anymore and I don't want to spend 10 days in court or whatever it would have been. And other people aggressively pursue it. And I think it, it, there's no blanket rule on this. But I, I hate for cases where there's a really good defense to then roll over and write a check for the plaintiff. But you know, uh, you're in Michigan, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm in Michigan. Are you near Ann Arbor? I'm about 40 minutes, yeah, north of Ann okay, Arbor. Okay, so you know, at the University of Michigan, they have a really unique program mm -hmm. and they call it kind of the SARI program. And if they, I, I went up there when I was chairman of the liability committee because we were promoting this. And what they had a program where, let's say an example that I remember had, a guy had an ACL reconstruction, he got a wound infection, he missed a couple of weeks of work, his mother had to fly in to help him get better, and he had some out-of-pocket stuff for the injury in his antibox. His total out-of-pocket expenses, lost wages, flying his mother in, et cetera, was six or $7,000, right? And the, the University of Michigan program is if you have a complication, they'll confront you and say, look, we're really sorry this happened. We've looked over all the possibilities, the ORs, your pre-op and post-op antibiotics, et cetera. We don't identify a, a cause here, but we feel bad for you. And uh, as a result, tell us what your expenses are. And they wrote him a check for $5,000, right? So one, the patient felt heard. And two, there was no lawsuit. You don't sign away liability. They just gave him a check with, in, ex in exchange for the receipts that he presented. And that program alone has cut down their malpractice expenses by 60%. We've all had patients where you know they had a DVT or they had an infection or they were unplanned to return to the OR and it cost them time out of work and out-of-pocket expenses. Mm -hmm. And while we aren't really at fault, it, this stuff happens. And so by kind of owning up to the fact that we feel bad for your disability and here's a few bucks in exchange to help you with, you know, what was otherwise an unplanned expense, two-thirds of their, their liability costs have gone away. It's pretty cool. And uh, our little insurance company has done this once or twice, and the patients were really pleased with it. So, you know, so just a thought, but whether you can get anybody to agree to that. Hospitals, on the other hand, never want to see the inside of a courtroom. They don't want a headline in the, you know, in the Detroit or any other newspaper that says such and such hospital, you know, set, uh, was sued successfully for you know, 50 million bucks, that's not a headline. Settling lawsuits that cost doing business for most hospitals. Thank you so much to Dr. Thomas Fleeter for joining us. You can find information to, for how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group at AUKUS.org and follow us on Twitter at AUKUS underscore YAG. 
Thank you for joining us for the Young Arthroplasty Group Augment podcast channel. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.